Well, thank you for being here again, and uh, we are in Psalm 119. Psalm 119, we are in the 15th stanza here, which begins in verse 113. So we're in 15 out of 22. We're almost there. We're nearing the end of this, uh, this little study. And we're coming here into stanza number 15. And this one is, I think, a really important one. And he talks about a lot of significant issues here. Um, stanza 15. Uh, let me just read this stanza, and then we'll kind of dive in, jump into the study. So I'm beginning in Psalm 119, verse 113. The psalmist writes... I hate vain thoughts, but thy law do I love. Thou art my hiding place and my shield. I hope in thy word. Depart from me, ye evildoers, for I will keep the commandments of my God. Uphold me according unto thy word, that I may live, and let me not be ashamed of my hope. Hold thou me up, and I shall be safe, and I will have respect unto thy statutes continually. Thou hast trodden down all them that err from from thy statutes, for their deceit is falsehood. Thou puttest away all the wicked of the earth like dross. Therefore, I love thy testimonies. My flesh trembleth for fear of thee, and I am afraid of thy judgments. I think there's uh, something significant that he starts out by saying here, which is he's talking about this idea of hating vain thoughts. Which I think is an interesting sort of declaration from the psalmist because he is literally targeting an area that I think is oftentimes overlooked in our Christian life. He says, I hate vain thoughts. I think we are oftentimes sort of um, blind or oblivious or maybe even to use this word, ignorant of sort of what we could call the, the sinfulness of sin which is we are often not fully aware or readily ad- ready to admit, ad- admit the, the scale of sin, the, the scope of sin, how far and how deep it has reached its fingers into our lives. Um, I think we often think of sin and very demonstrable actions, adultery, murder, theft, lying, those sorts of things. And obviously those are sins, uh, of course. Uh, but as we read the scriptures... Uh, One of the most significant portions of your Bible is Matthew 5, where Jesus reorients and actually amplifies how we should view sin. If you remember, let me just flip there. I I won't read all of Matthew 5, but I'll reference it, and you can turn there. Because in Matthew 5, it's important to see what Jesus does here, because he takes what many in that day thought of as sin, as something that was going against the law, and he reoriented to show that it's a lot worse, they are a lot worse than, you th- than they think they are. Remember, he says in verse 17, that he says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am, co- I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And he says, I am come to fulfill. Why? Because you are worse off than you think you are. It's not just actions. It's not just you committing adultery. He says, if you have lusted in your heart, you've done it already. It's not just uh, not hitting your brother. It's anger that festers in your heart. That's as if you've committed murder already. 
He's amplifying what we think of sin. He's increasing how we should see the sinfulness of sin. It's not just an action. It's your, it's your motivations. It's your intentions. It's your heart. It's your thoughts. It's so far beyond your ability to control, such as why he says, I'm come to fulfill it, because you absolutely cannot. And I think that's kind of what David is hinting at here when he says, I hate vain thoughts. This, he knows that this sickness of sin which, with which he is afflicted with goes far deeper than he could ever know or imagine. And I think if we are truthful with ourselves, we are more sinful than we would ever care to admit. <laughs> Oftentimes we don't like to say that. I don't like to say that. I don't like to say that, I, uh, that I'm more sinful than I want to admit, but I know it's true. I know it's true in my heart that sin has not only tarnished my life, it has tarnished my, uh, uh, my affections, my thoughts, my motivations. And such as I think is what uh, David is talking about here in this, in this, in this uh, stanza. That what he loves has, and what he pursues has been distorted, misplaced. Why? Because when he says, I hate vain thoughts, again, he's talking about this idea of being double-minded. This idea of having uh, of, uh, mixed affections. You could even reference where Jesus is talking about serving two masters. That's actually kind of what he's hinting at here. He hates this idea that he knows what he should believe, and yet he still has these vain thoughts, these other loves coming into his heart. It reminds me of Romans chapter 1. Let me read some verses in Romans 1. We're jumping to a couple places before we get to where we want to be, but that's okay. Um, in Romans 1, Paul talks about that because he talks about how man's love... His loves in life, his affections, have been basically twisted upside down. He talks about that in verse 24, Romans 1.24. He says, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And he goes on to talk about how God has given them up because they have twisted their affections. They have given in to those vain thoughts. They've, uh, they've embraced this double-mindedness. And now man, as Paul talks about there, and as David knows in him his own self, he loves what he ought to hate. Remember he talks about that in Romans 7, that he knows what he should do, and he doesn't do it. And the things that he shouldn't do, he does those things. <laughs> and he, Paul is uh, confessing how frustrated he is at that fact. And David, I think, is here expressing the same thing. I hate vain thoughts. I loathe this double-mindedness in my own heart and life. The fact that I know what I should be pursuing and I still have these other loves. Such is the mission of the gospel in our lives. Charles Bridges, the great commentator who is, uh, I've been referencing a lot for this study, he says this, that the work of divine grace is to restore the disordered affections to their proper center and to bestow them on their right object, meaning Jesus, <laughs> 
That these vain thoughts, these uh, loose affections, these other things that have come and afflicted us with these vain thoughts, these, uh, these arbitrary cares and loves, the mission of grace is to reorder them, to restore them how they ought to be, to give us right affections again, affections only for Jesus. This is sort of the seriousness of the gospel. Because yes, it is free and is loving and it is mercy, but the gospel is an, also an invasion. It's an invasion of our own hearts and lives to restore us to right affections, to right worship, to correct our thoughts, to realign our attitudes and hearts and desires to uh, be what honors God. That's where you can, Paul references this, I think, in 2 Corinthians 10, where he talks about how we can take our thoughts captive to the Lord Jesus Christ. I think here in this stanza, David really hints at three, uh, three I, I've called them three lessons about restoring our affections. Restoring our affections from these vanities, these vain thoughts, to right affections. And how that happens. Well, first of all, look with me. Verse 113 again, because I think we see a lesson about hating. A lesson about hating. He says, I hate vain thoughts. But thy law do I love. And jump down to verse 115. Depart from me, ye evildoers, for I will keep the commandments of my God. Again, he's making a really decisive statement. One that you, you can't really get around. It's very clear in what he's saying. I hate these things. These vain thoughts, again, divided mind is that notion of living in, within, with two masters, two cares, two loves that are in conflict. Now some, uh, in, in fact, if you have a different translation than mine, it might actually read that he hates the double-minded. Meaning, it's almost like, in some translations, they, they kind of word this as if it's, he's talking about other people who are double-minded. But I actually... Uh, contend with some other commentators because there's a lot there's like a little bit of a variance here that he's actually talking about himself that's what i that's how i read this that is he's not talking about those out there who are double-minded he's referencing himself that i hate my vain thoughts i hate my double-mindedness i hate it so much that I, I i can't even deal with it he's coming to this clear recognition as we've seen throughout this chapter, that his faith isn't pure all the time. That his faith isn't perfect. It isn't firm. We've seen that. He has, he's constantly dealing with his own heart and soul. His own heart, which is weak. His own soul, which is not strong or firm. He's constantly asking God, bring me back to my first love. God, give me the assurance of what your word says and let me believe that it's true. I think here he's expressing that. He says, I do love your law, but there's these other loves that come in to my heart and my life and I hate them. And he's frustrated by these divergent attentions and attachments and affections, these things that are distracting him from what is true and right and good. He says, I hate. It's a strong word. It's a word that 
ought to make you think of war, of conflict. Because literally, I hate. He's considering these divergent thoughts, his enemies. He's declaring war on those things which get him away from honoring God. I hate them, and I hate them so much that I'm declaring war on them. They are my enemies. <laughs> the, the enemy within his own heart and soul is something which with, with which he cannot even escape. He says, I hate it. I hate that I struggle with this. I hate that I'm constantly in this conflict with myself. (laughs) Paul Tripp, the great uh, speaker and writer, he says this, that the war that rages in all our hearts is a war between the awe of God and the awe of self. I think really that's what it boils down to. Awe of self, Tripp later defines as sort of the DNA of sin. That if you want to get at the crux and the kernel of sin, it's this. You are in awe of yourself. That's a vain thought. It's an arbitrary affection that everything revolves around you. The Latin reformers called this navel-gazing. It's man just turned in on himself, looking at his own self, caring about his own, his own cares and wants and desires and needs, but restoring us to right affections. This is what the gospel does. It turns us back to an awe of God, an affection for the things of God. This is why it requires war, because our own hearts are bent towards that. They're bent towards ourselves. And I think David knows. David knows his own inability and instability here. He knows the truth, and he's still resorting to selfishness, and that's why he's in conflict with it. That's why he has declared war on this unfaith, this fluctuation, this vacillation uh, in his own heart, which he feels is defining him. I hate it. God, let them depart from me. All these evildoers, these things that come into my life, people, influences, thoughts, depart from me. I don't want anything to do with them. He's taking a forceful stand here. He is learning this lesson about what we ought to hate. Depart from me, ye evildoers. He's combating these vain thoughts and he's despising these things that are coming in that are trying to weigh him down and drag him down. And though David could not fully eradicate these vain thoughts, nor can we, we do not relent in this fight. You see that throughout the rest. I can't wait to get to the end of this study because you're going to see that very starkly, very clearly. But just the fact that David knows he is not able to do this perfectly, completely. And he knows also that doesn't mean we just give up. We don't just lay down our arms and say, okay, uh, vanity, come at me and I'll just let you have your way. He is persistent in the fight. He's persistent. Why? Because he knows that he's not the one that's truly and ultimately doing all the fighting. He knows there's another person that has taken up this fight for him. But I think the thing that I see out of these verses that just stands out to me, and I had to ask myself, have I declared war on my sin? 
Have you? Is it that serious to you with which you have to say, I hate these things that afflict me? Or are you okay with them living in your life for a little bit? Are you okay with just a little bit as long as you don't do a really egregious thing? David reminds us of the seriousness of the things we ought to hate. The things that God hates, we ought to hate. And that's the surest sign. The surest sign that you are one who is pursuing after God is this struggle with sin. Most oftentimes people think that struggling with sin is a bad sign. I think it's a good sign because it means that the Spirit is inside you. If you don't have the Spirit, you wouldn't be struggling at all. You wouldn't be worried about what is happening in your soul. But if you're struggling with it, that means you care about your soul. And the Spirit is speaking to you and reminding you that He is the one that has this. He's got this in the fight. Believe in Him in this war. It's a lesson about hating. Secondly, look at verse 116. We see a lesson about holding. Look at 116 and 117. David writes, Uphold me according unto thy word, that I may live, and let me not be ashamed of my hope. Hold thou me up, and I shall be safe, and I will have respect unto thy statutes continually. Here he's testifying to that wonderful grace and power that is holding him as he is engaging in this conflict. He says, hold me so that I can live, he says in verse 116. Hold me, verse 117, that I may be safe, that I can stay safe. Uphold and hold me up. Similar words which really just emphasize the idea of being supported or sustained or strengthened. And he's praying to God, let me lean on you. Let me me be braced by what your word says. As I engage in this war. Notice he says in verse 116. um, According unto thy word. It's the phrase that we've been seeing. uh, It's almost in every stanza. It's in uh, almost every single one. And it's so important because that's what he's driving his life by. He's being taught how to drive his life according unto God's word. What it says about God himself and about what it says about David himself. He says, God, brace me by those things, those promises. Because he knows that this campaign against sin is an absolute defeat if he does it on his own strength. He, he can't win this fight. He can't win this battle. Such is why he says, uphold me, support me. I need God, I need God your reinforcements. As I'm engaging this war with these vain thoughts, this double-minded affection, I need you. I need you to remind me that you're holding me with your hand. And that's where he derived all of his confidence. His confidence in this war wasn't because of his spirituality, wasn't because he was so moral and upright and good and righteous. It was because he knew the person that was holding him. He knew that all of that was because of his spirit, God's spirit within him. And that's what I love, is that here this strength that David is banking on That he's trying to say to God, let me lean in on your strength. That's a strength that is tireless, that is ceaseless. David knew 
his endurance was limited. It came to a stopping point. He would uh, get tired in this conflict, in this life. But he's, he's leaning in onto a ceaseless, untiring strength. A strength which doesn't faint. Which reminds me of this verse. When I was reading it, I was struck by the verses at the end of Isaiah 40. You probably know them. But at the end of Isaiah 40, the prophet says, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, he doesn't faint, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And they shall mount up with wings as eagles, and they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. That's David, right here. He's leaning in, and he's not fainting, not because he is a a, a superman Christian. It's because he's leaning in to the strength that doesn't faint, that doesn't allow him to grow weary. Why? It's because it's God's strength and not his own. He's saying, uphold me. Let me lean into you, God. This is what the word assures us of. That regardless of what we endure, we have a sustainer who never tires, who never is exhausted, who is never fatigued. He doesn't fall or falter or faint. He's not wearied by our constant uh, wavering. He's always there to support and sustain us, to hold us by his hand. This is what the word assures us of. He says, God, hold me by your power, in verse 16, 116, that I may live, uh, uphold me according unto thy word. And this is the amazing thing, too, here. In this lesson about holding, is the fact that the God of all glory holds you in the palm of his hand. This is a thing that I I can't, I struggle to get over. I pray I don't get over it. (laughs) But it's just this constant theme in my head that, this, that the God who created everything is holding you, sustaining you. I, I always reference it because it's so uncanny. Just the fact in Matthew chapter 10, remember, he references the fact that he knows how many hairs are on their head. He, is, he knows that as they're going bald, he counts how many hairs they're losing. It's hyperbolic and it's meant to be so. Because he says, that's how much I care about you. Me, the God of everything, the one who spoke and worlds formed. As the one who knows how many hairs you have lost yesterday, he knows how many hairs you're going to lose today and tomorrow too. He says that he knows when the sparrow falls and goes hungry there. He cares that much. He says, do you not think that my heavenly father will care more for you? This is the God who holds us. This is our place of safety. Being in his hand, in the palm of 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 the Savior's hand. The Savior who is also the sustainer. The creator who is also the redeemer. This is the hand in which we are made to be safe. It reminds me of that great quote 
I mentioned a couple weeks ago in our study, which this one writer, his name is Robert Capon, he says, the life of faith is simply the constant willingness to trust that there's another hand that holds our life along with us. This is David. He's exemplifying the life of faith. He is weak in this fight. He is unable to persist in this battle, but he persists not in his own strength, but in the fact and in the faith that this other hand is holding him. This other hand is keeping him steady, is keeping him secure and sure. That's a lesson about holding. Look quickly at the end here, verse 114, and then also the last three verses. Because we have here, I think, a lesson about hiding. Look at what he says. Thou art my hiding place and my shield. I hope in thy word. Look at verse 118. Thou hast trodden down all them that err from thy statutes, for their deceit is falsehood. Thou puttest away all the wicked of the earth like dross. Therefore I love thy testimonies. My flesh trembleth for fear of thee, and I am afraid of thy judgments. Here he is again referencing another way that his affections are being brought into a a new light, being given new thoughts in this conflict against these vain thoughts. And it's the idea that the word of God is what reminds him, the spirit reminds him that we have this shelter and shield in God himself. He says, thou art my hiding place and my shield. I think about this because uh, you have to remember who is writing this. Obviously, it's King David. But remember, David spent the majority of his early life on the run. He was running for his very life as his best friend's father was hunting him down to claim his life. He's running as a fugitive of the kingdom of Israel, the one who should be king. And he's running for his very life among caves and among rocks and hills. I think about how many nights and how many days and nights was David forced to hide? How many times was he forced to find refuge in secrecy in these caves and those rocks? I think David knew exactly what he meant when he said hiding place. It was probably a very uh, resonant thing for David. The fact that he was reminded that in all of those seasons of running, his God was the one that was hiding him. His God was the one that was keeping him sheltered and secure and safe. And the glory is the fact that this God is the, is the same shelter for you and I. He is our hiding place as well. But I love what David goes at here because he, at the end he gets into these strong words about what God does to his enemies. About what God does to those who are wicked. He says, Thou hast trodden down all them that err. Thou hast pushed away all the wicked of the earth like dross. And then at the end he says, I tremble. I'm trembling out of fear because I'm confronted by your absolute holiness and righteousness. He's hinting and he's referencing the idea that God is unflinchingly holy. There's not even the tiniest speck of sin is allowed. 
And faith allows us to see both, both the freeness of the gospel and the rigidity of the righteousness of God. Because faith allows us and lets us see that we are hidden in Christ. Let me show you this because I love this. Look at verse, or look over at Colossians chapter 3. Because I, let me just take you here really quick. Because I, I was struck by this thought. Colossians 3, and look at verse 1. Paul is writing, If then ye be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection, the word we've been talking about, on things above, not on things on the earth, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. You see this? We who have faith in Christ, we are hidden in Him. Meaning that God's wrath and judgment for wickedness is not upon us. Because we are hidden in Christ. We are hidden away from the wrath of God for wickedness and sin. We who hide in Christ's covering are, uh, are hidden from being put away and being trodden down. Why? Because we have a Savior who was trodden down for us. We have a Savior who bore all of that wrath on our behalf. Now we are hidden in Him. It's not just shelter to weather the storms and trials of life. It's shelter from the fury of God's holiness. That's why he says, I tremble. He trembles because he knows that should be him apart from this intervention of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Apart from the promised Messiah that one day would come, this would be him. He would be put away. He would be trodden down. Because he knew that he was wicked and he was not who he ought to be. If not for this shelter, we would have been rejected and condemned right along with these who David is referencing. But praise be to God, he is our hiding place. We find covert and covering in him, our strong tower. I love how Bridges, he writes this, Charles Bridges, the commentator, he says, Jesus exposed himself to the fury of the tempest that he might become a hiding place for us. Helpless to resist the great enemy, our Lord brings us to his wounded side and hides us there. We are hidden in the wounds of Christ. Wounds which were inflicted because of this unflinchingly complete righteousness and holiness. That could not withstand this tiniest speck of sin. But now Christ's shelter means we have freedom. We have, as it says elsewhere in the epistles, that Christ's love drives out fear. Why? Because we are hidden in him. This is What we are called to see here. This is what brings us to right affections. This Savior trodden down for us. This Savior who welcomes us into his own self. And we can always rely on it. Because as we've seen throughout this study, this Savior doesn't change. 
He is not like us. <laughs> he is not varied and divergent and with his affections. He is constant and sure and firm and always the same. He is eternally the same, eternally truthful. Our right affections, or, or I should say our misplaced affections are made right when they come back to this Christ who is our hiding place, who is our shelter and shield. It calls us to see the seriousness of sin. That we have no ability in this fight apart from the Spirit. But also calls us to see the sympathy that God has for sinners who welcomes us into his own self. By taking the place of those sinners himself. This is how our affection is restored and made right and made new. Let us pray.